Open your Bibles, please. The Gospel according to the good Dr. Luke. If you'd like, it's up on the screens. It's also in your Bibles. We have a message today. It's called Holy Hope. That's the title. It's in Luke 21, 7 to 33. It's a long passage. We're not going to unpack it as you might expect. I had some people come up to me over the last uh, real couple weeks saying, oh, we're getting to that passage there. We get to talk about the end times and signs and symbols and all that. And I said, uh... You may not be as happy as you are right now thinking about what we're going to do. But I'm going to show you something that I think is important. And I'm going to show you how to keep from getting yourself all messed up and and looking at stuff that uh, really we don't need to look at the way that some people do. As you know, there have been volumes written about when he's coming and how he's coming. And there have been dates and times that have been listed and all of them are wrong. Every one of them. What did Jesus himself say in in his humanity? No one knows but the Father. The time when the sun will return. Okay? So we want to focus on what's most important, and I think we have that in this passage. Okay? Holy Hope, 21, 7 to 33. Remember this phrase, Maranatha? Maybe some of you know it. Remember you grew up in a church with that? What what, what was that phrase for? The Lord is coming. Maranatha. So he's coming. So the question before the house is this. When was the last time you thought about that? His return. Let's take a look. 21, 7 to 33. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you the words of wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on. By the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up. Lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look, the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away and may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant infallible word let's pray father it's no accident we're here this morning everyone by divine design speak into each heart make it a word of salvation for the unsaved comfort for those in storm winds and rest for the tired weary and heavy laden give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ come now fount of every blessing unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only And it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. Okay, three things under the holy hope. You ready? Three. Number one, what's the purpose for it? 
Number two, what's the power in it? And number three, the person of it. I'm just going to give you just a little bit of a breakdown of that passage. We're probably not going to go in the direction some of you thought we would, and then you'll see how all this ties together. The sign of the end of the age, 7 to 11, right? That's there. Remember right before that, 5 and 6, the destruction of the temple. We preached that last week. So here we have the signs of the ends of the age. Then 12 to 19, the persecution of the, the, the disciples. That becomes important in today's passage. Judgment upon Jerusalem, 20 to 24. That's there. And then you're going to see the second coming of Christ. <clears throat> right? That's what we're going to deal with. And in, in that, that little bit of a parable, all it says is when you see the leaves, you know summer's coming. So when you see the signs, you know he's coming. And I'm going to tell you what the primary sign is. Okay? A couple things to be certain of what this whole thing is all about in the new testament we have over 300 references 300 pat that allude to the second coming 300 somewhere between one and one out of every 25 or so verses you know what that means it talks about it all the time most moral commands are tied to the second coming in the new testament do you know why be careful how you live, not as unwise, but wise, living in what we call the light of eternity. He's promised that he's coming back. So this passage is not telling us to look for certain signs. It's telling us to look for the promised coming Savior. That's the key. We also, in the Old Testament, we can find what we would call hints of this holy hope throughout the Old Testament, the second coming. We see it in Job and the Psalms and Isaiah and Daniel. So this is a theme that is everywhere. And it ought to be before us continually. Because is it not true that he could come before the service is over? So the question before the house is this. When was the last time you actually thought about it? When was the last time you really considered the fact that he's coming back? It's spoken of in the New Testament eight times more often than the first coming. This is powerful. And it's, we've preached on this before, so you'll hear some similar things and familiar things. You may even see something that's familiar. But we need to keep hitting this one. We'll hit it again before we get to the end of the book. He's coming back. Are you ready? Are you prepared? You ready? Are you ready for this? We're going to head out into some deep water. Let our nets down for a catch. Here we go. Number one, what is the purpose in the passage? It's not what you might think. You have to look at the audience. What's the audience? Let's, let's look at the audience and then let's unpack it very briefly. Okay? Who is Jesus speaking to? Remember, he's been teaching the people. He's been teaching in the synagogues. He's been teaching on the hillsides. He's been teaching... Who's he talking to right here? He's talking to his disciples. Remember, they looked at the temple coming out and said, look at these stones and look at these votive gifts. And he says, I tell you the truth, not one of these stones will be left on another. The destruction of, of the temple and Jerusalem is coming. And, and, and then he, 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 he gives them this. He's talking to a people that are about to be persecuted. Tie that into this. <clears throat> Who's in the group? John. John's in the group. John writes Gospel of John, 1, 2, 3 John, and Revelation, right? Do you think for a second, think about this, that Revelation was written for you 2,000 years later to approach it in some kind of academic sense to figure out signs and symbols and, 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 and systems? In the, is that, do you think that's why it was written? It has nothing to do with that. Who was John writing to? A persecuted church. He was writing to people who were suffering unimaginably. By the time you get to the end of the first century, persecution was, was widespread. It was everywhere. Under Domitian, it was everywhere. Everyone was being persecuted for the name of Christ. John wasn't writing so that 2,000 years later we could, we could spend our, 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 our time trying to figure out signs and symbols. It had nothing to do with that. It was a hope and a comfort to a people that were being obliterated for the cause of Christ. Back up to Jesus speaking. John's in the group. He's speaking for the same reason. He's speaking to the same audience. 
and he's speaking to you today. Okay? Before all this, they will persecute and deliver you to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors on account of my name. So he's telling them what's coming. Then we jump to 16. You will be betrayed by your family, friends. And they will put even some of you to death. Okay? So now we understand the audience. So now all I want to do is just kind of briefly unpack the audience because we don't have a lot of real solid information. We have what's called church tradition. We have some historical but we only have really two things in Scripture. Some say, well, we only have one record of, of, of an apostle's death. I'm going to submit to you we have two, um, and I'll show you how. But let's go to the first one. Let's go to Acts, right? Let's take a look. What, what really happened to these guys? Let's take a look at Acts 12. He, Herod, had James, John's brother, right, put to death by the sword. You know what that kind of means? It seem, seemingly suggests he's beheaded. It's not probably run through. They run through them with spears. The spears was beheaded. Okay? They say that's all that's there. I think there's one more. Going to go back to when Jesus has been resurrected. They're out fishing. All hope is lost. They've seen him. They just they don't know what to do. They're trying to figure it all out. Peter's distraught. And Jesus is going to now reinstate Peter in front of the disciples. And notice what he says. Don't miss this. Very truly, I tell you, Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 19 interprets what he just said. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Okay, so do we have a second death in the scripture? Sure, what is that? That's a promise from Jesus. What was the promise? Notice the flow of the promise. Peter, Peter. Peter, I just reinstated you. Time's coming. They're going to lay you out. You're going to be crucified. And his final word to Peter is, follow me. Follow me to your death. And does he? Now we have to go to church tradition. We don't have it in scripture. Church tradition tells us he followed them. But not the same way. Because Peter said to his captors, those who are about to crucify him. I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. How about you tip me upside down? And church tradition tells us he was crucified upside down. So there's, there's two that we're... We, we, now, let's just kind of run through the rest. Got to get a feel for the audience. Who Jesus is speaking to. Okay? Andrew, Peter's brother, Jude and Simon the Zealot, they were all crucified. Bartholomew was flayed with a whip till he died. Everything exposed. Thomas is stabbed with a spear. Philip is impaled by iron hooks in his ankles and hung upside down till he dies. James the less is thrown off the pinnacle of the temple, but he survives. So they run down and beat him with clubs. Matthew is beheaded in Africa. Matthias, he replaces Judas. A little later he comes, but I figured let's throw him in anyway. He's stoned. That didn't work. So then they behead him. John, only one, scriptures tell us, died of natural causes. But don't think he was on a vacation in the Isle of Patmos. He wasn't. He wasn't Club Med. It's a bad place to be, and he was there to write. But you know what church tradition tells us? They put him in a vat of boiling oil. Why didn't he die? He still had some work to do. So you're not going to die until it's your time. Remember those three guys in the Old Testament they threw in that fiery furnace? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why didn't they die? Wasn't their time. Daniel in the lion's den. Why didn't he die? Wasn't his time. Jesus said, you can't touch me. It's not my time. And no one takes my life. I will lay it down and I will lift it back up. No one will touch a hair on your head until it's your time. All of it under the sovereign control of, of the Almighty. So he's telling his disciples, there's some really bad stuff that's coming. But I want you to have this hope. Because this is the only thing that's really going to get you through the other side. In 64, under Nero, Rome is burning. He's the responsible party for the fire. Seven days it burns. He blames the Christian, hence the start 
of, of region-wide persecution of the Christians. So now let's just look at a few things that they did. Because he was speaking to his disciples in the immediate presence. And all the disciples who would follow. All those who would read the scriptures and hear the stories that were passed on. So what happened to some of those people? I'll just give you a few pieces. Some, their homes were simply taken away. And they went into the mines for hard labor. Others were impaled on stakes while they were still alive, covered with pitch and set ablaze. They became the fiery torchlights in Nero's garden. Thrown to beasts in the arena. They say, were they really thrown to lions? Not just lions, leopards and boars. And then they were covered by animal hides and torn apart by wild dogs. This was sport, by the way, in the arena. It's like you'd go to a sporting event and cheer your favorite team. They would go in and cheer that the Christians were being destroyed by these animals. It was unbelievable. So the question is, how, how, how could they go to their death? Many of them, and you've read many stories, I'm sure. Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's many, many, many documented uh, resources for us to tell us how they died. They would be singing songs and spiritual songs and hymns. How is that possible? They knew something. Their captors and killers didn't know. They had a holy hope. They had this unimaginable holy hope. Tertullian was an early church father, about 150 to 240. He was a theologian. His most famous work was his Apologeticus. It was the defense of the Christian faith. Here's what he wrote. Here's what he said. It's reported what he said. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You understand what that means? You have to ask the question, why? Why would the blood of the martyrs be the seed of the church? Seed causing it to grow. Why? Because of the way they died. Tied to stakes and set on fire at their feet, singing hymns to Jesus. How could you do that? You had a hope. You had a hope that nothing in this life could touch. Nothing. That's what they had. So what, what was the, the purpose? To give them a hope. To tell them that, that they, they were going to be okay. And remember also, if you would come into Rome, the streets would be lined with crucified Christians dying by degrees. Often they weren't nailed. They were just simply tied. And they'd be attacked by wild animals at times and the birds. And, and, and they could be hanging for days upon days, weeks, until they died. Lying there, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them telling those who were coming in, this is going to happen to you if you believe what they believe if you speak this name purpose giving them hope ready for this how you live today listen to this is determined by what you believe about tomorrow let me say that one more time don't miss this how you live today is determined by what you believe about your tomorrow that's how they could die like they did. They knew what tomorrow held. They knew the promise of the returning Christ. They knew there would be a judgment day. They knew that every single wrong would be made right. They knew that. And they were able to live in the face of unimaginable persecution. And suffer and die. Because they knew the one they suffered and died for. Number two. The power for it. Ready for the power? Watch this. This is a paradoxical statement with two seemingly opposite truths. He just said some of you are going to die. Now he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. What's that? By standing firm, you will gain life. First of all, hair on your head. You hear the echo? The Lord Jesus... Numbers, the hairs on your heads, right? Some of you, he, he don't have to number too many. You don't have too many. 
It's easy to count. Some of you got lots. What's the point? He knows you intimately. He just said some are going to die, but not a hair on your... What is that? Let me tell you what it isn't. It isn't a promise for everyday life. Have you been promised tomorrow? Here? Say no. Have you been promised tonight? You haven't even been promised to get through this sermon. That's not the promise. People preach that kind of stuff all the time. It's silly. What is it a promise? Not a hair of your head will appear. What is it a promise? It's a promise for what? Eternal life. No one will snatch you from my hands. You're mine. Don't bank on tomorrow. Bank on me. Bank on the truth. Live in that moment, live in the present, but the way you live in the present will be determined by what you believe about tomorrow. What do you believe about that future? Do you think that when you die, you just rot? Millions believe that. You just rot. So then that determines how you live. Doesn't really matter how you live. Nothing matters. Get to the end, it's over. Or do you believe there's something? And in that something, do you believe that there's a judgment? Because if you do, it should impact the way you look at life and the way you live. Okay? This is not a grin and bear it kind of a promise thing. It's not, why? It's an empowerment by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not supposed to go through life grinning and bearing it and just trying to get to the other side. You don't just survive life. You thrive through it because of the promises that you've been given in Christ. Paul says these momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the promise that we have in glory. They're, and I'm not minimizing momentary affliction. None. Some horrible things have happened to lots of people. Some of you have suffered greatly. We're not minimizing that. This morning we had our fifth traditional. The first three were preached by Dr. Ron Kovac. You know that. The fourth he watched from home. He was sick. He couldn't answer the bell. The fifth. Today. He watched from heaven. And he'd tell you, it's true. Heaven does work backwards, and you'll see that quote in just a moment. God has taken all of that stuff and used it ultimately for his glory and for my good. That's the promise that we have in Christ. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, it's an important one to have. It's important for you to know. Very, very common passage here that we use take a look Romans 8 38 to 39 for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor present nor future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord what does that mean nothing can ever separate you from Christ not your sin not Satan not your suffering, nothing. Dr. Sproul would change the term this way in the seminary. I don't really like the perseverance of the saints because it kind of leads you to believe maybe that you're just fighting your way through life. And if you fight hard enough, you're going to persevere and get to the other side. He says, no, 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 Tommy. It's the preservation of the saints. He who began a good work will complete it. And it's got nothing to do with you. You're not going to get yourself to the other side. He's already promised to get you there. You just have to make the decision moment by moment how you're going to walk. You're going to walk by faith. You're going to walk by sight. You decide. But he's already promised to get you to the other side. That's the power of understanding the perseverance that we've, we have been given in Christ. So now, whew, ready for a quote? Don't miss this one. This one be worth price of admission. In the great divorce, Clive Staple Lewis writes these words. Some say of temporal suffering no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards. Backwards. And turn even that agony into a glory. What is he saying? We could spend weeks, but this is profound. What is he saying? Heaven will work backwards. Pause. 
can't, can't you look back in your life right now, a year, two years, a couple years, and see something that when you were in the middle of it, it was overwhelming you? It was crushing you? You're thinking, oh, I can't. I, and today, you see God's hand, and you realize that God used that for his glory and for your, of course you can. If you're old enough, you see it a hundred times. Maybe more. Heaven's working backwards. What did Joseph say at the end of his mess to his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is taking your pain and telling you there's purpose in it. And he's working through it. You are being hammered on the anvil of affliction. Why? You're being conformed to the image of Christ. And every time that hammer comes down, it's painful and it hurts. But it's shaping you and forming you into the image of his beloved son, Jesus. That's the holy hope that we have. That's the promise. That's what Dr. Ron knows today. Heaven once attained will work backwards and turn every agony into a glory. Finally, let's take a look at the person. Here's the key. Here it is. Here's the whole passage. Here's the promise. In the person who gives the power. Ready? At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. You have any idea what clouds mean in Scripture? They're symbols of the divine presence. Now, all sorts of cultures have used clouds for all sorts of things. There are even proverbial statements with clouds. There's one in particular, right? There's one about the man who tells the lie, right? The, man, the cloud without rain is like a man who doesn't keep his promise. He tells the lie because you expect rain with the clouds. What do we see in Scripture in the clouds? The presence of God everywhere in Scripture. So let's hit a few, okay? I set my rainbow in the clouds. This is the Noahic promise and covenant. The sign of the covenant in the clouds, he says. The Exodus redemption. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud. God is confirming his covenant to Moses. Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai in the cloud. Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love and him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then I have to give you this one because this is the one that puts the whole thing together. You ready? Acts 1.9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. You know what that means? The way he went, he's coming back. He's coming back. To say, he, he, he left with a, with a body, resurrected, supernatural body, but a real body. A body that did what? A body that could be touched and be handled. A body that ate. He ate a fish. Oh, I love that verse. I love fish. I love to eat. We're going to eat in heaven. We're going to dance in heaven. The new heavens and the new earth, we're going to hug. We're going to serve. We're going to work. We're not going to be spiritual beings strumming celestial harps on clouds. Clouds are for him, not for you. Get your mind right. It's a new heaven and a new earth and a whole new existence for all of God's people. So how do we anchor this in? You know how I like to use handles that you can hang on to? And you know I love sometimes movie clips. I use stuff all the time. People, people say, are you really reformed? I don't know. I don't know. But I know this. Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible. To, no, no, no. I know that if we will be open to these Biblical, theological themes. We'll see them everywhere. 
So here's one once you see it. Some of you have seen it before with me. But when you see it, you're never going to forget it. And it will anchor you, and I hope it will keep you up at night. Because it will anchor you into the promise of what we've just read. The promise that is all throughout Scripture that Jesus has given to you. That he's coming back. One of the greatest... I'll be back. I'll be back. I believe that's one of the greatest cinematic lines in all of movie history. That's exactly what Jesus has said to you. I'll be back. When was the last time you thought about that? Do you live in the light of eternity that he's coming back? Does it matter? Do you know that I've spoken to Christians who say this to me? I know he's coming back. I just hope he doesn't come right now. i got some things I need to get done. What's the matter with you? What could you possibly... Tell me what you're doing. I need to find out because you know what? I can't wait for him to get here. What could you possibly be doing that you, you, you'd like him to wait? Lost your mind. He's coming back. To take you to the new heavens and the new earth. Eye has not seen, ears not heard. This is the promise. I hope that video clip keeps you up at night. You rolling around in bed and you go, man, that pastor, I can't believe. I'll be back. I can't get out of my head. I'll be back. I'll be, because he's coming back. Live like you know he's coming and Now. Always tell the kids, always over the years we were training. Think about this. Whenever you're about to go do something, ask the question, would this be okay if he came back while I was in the middle of this? These are questions to ask. But you think 2,000 years, oh, it could be another two. It could, could, it, it could be anything. But that's the whole point when Jesus says no one knows but the Father in his humanity. Why? To be ready. To live ready for his return. To live in the light of eternity. That's the whole point. Most of the moral commands are tied into the second coming. Why? You should be ready. So, how do we close? Oh, I know I've used, I know I've used Thurman before, but this is worth using. Because this is profound. This is a profound statement from an African-American scholar, Howard Thurman, back in 1947. He gave a lecture at Harvard, Harvard University. And the lecture that he gave was rooted in his response to this. Criticism over what could be called the Negro spirituals. The songs of Jubilee, there's a number of names. And the criticism came to him like this. You know, these songs are just so otherworldly. They're just thrones and crowns and robes and rivers. And it, it just, it seems to me, the critic said, that it just convinced the slaves to be docile and just simply give up. Not resist, not fight against their captors. And he said, oh my. So he wrote and he taught. And he responded on this what we call sung faith. That is rooted in scripture. And I want you to see these words from Howard Thurman in 47. About the Negro spiritual songs. What greater tribute could be paid to religious faith in general and to their the slaves religious faith in particular than this it taught a people how to ride high to life to look squarely in the face of those facts that argued most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as the raw material out of which they fashioned hope that the environment, with all of its cruelty, could not crush. This sung faith enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible 
right to live. Do you understand that? What did they know? They knew that in spite of this unimaginable, endless brutality and poverty that their lives were confined to, they knew a day was coming when Jesus was coming back. They knew judgment day was coming. They knew that every wrong would be made right. They knew that everything you do now matters. They knew that what you do echoes in eternity, and they trusted in Christ. It was that hope. How could they possibly survive? They had a hope that even those unimaginable circumstances could not touch. Why? That hope was out there. That hope was up there. That hope could not be touched. So they sang the truth of the scriptures, and they prevailed. Why? Because they had a holy hope that no unholy, sinful man could affect. You might be familiar. I don't have the video. We can only bring one. It's, we can't do too many. The Return of the King and the Lord of the Rings. Let me set it up and be brief. J.R. Tolkien. Lewis's friend, they had a little group together. Sam, one of the characters, Sam Ganji, he was a hobbit of the Shire, you might remember, Frodo's best friend and gardener. And we get to the point where the ring has been destroyed at Mount Doom. Sam wakes up and he's surprised that he's awake. When the ring is destroyed, he thought everything would be destroyed and that would be the end of everything. So Sam wakes up and he speaks to Gandalf these words. Don't miss this. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The slaves knew that. The Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have known that. Do you know that? Do you, do you, do you see what he does? You, you, you need to look at this. He doesn't, what does he say? Is everything sad going to come? He doesn't say all of our hopes and dreams and wishes going to come true. He doesn't say that. What does he first acknowledge? The reality of the way life is. Is life sad? Life has been cursed by sin. There's sadness and suffering everywhere. You're dealing with it right now. This is an eschatological hope that comes out of the Lord of the Rings that you, you need to see. Is everything sad going to come untrue? He acknowledges the truth that there really is horrible sadness in this world. But will it come untrue? Yes. Yes. Heaven itself is going to work backwards. And every agony will be turned into a glory. That's the promise that you have in Christ. Revelation 1-7. Look, look, he is coming with the clouds. He's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him and even those who pierced him. What does that tell you? Judgment day is coming. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment, if you're still alive, it's coming. Every single one will stand before the throne. Everyone who has ever lived, regardless of what you believe, Jesus is coming back this time. Oh, he's coming back. Don't miss this. So this will clear up for you signs and symbols. You ready? You ready? Because some of you still go, oh, I thought he was going to unpack all those sun, moon, and stuff. No, no, no. I have no time for that. You deal with it. I have time for three things. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the sign of signs. I'm only looking for one sign. The final sign. The sign when Jesus returns. That's all you need to look for. You don't need to get caught up in all that other stuff. Everybody's ever written about has been wrong. Everybody. 
Most great theologians have shifted positions, scholars back in. There are signs coming. I'm looking for one. The Savior coming on the cloud. To hear the sound and, and, and the trumpet and the shout. I'm, I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to. Here's the final line. This is the truth that you need to keep with you. The best is yet to come. With outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Christ says, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Listen, listen, listen to this. Some of you are thinking, I, I'm probably never going to be thrown in the arena to the wild beast. You're, you're right. You're probably not. You're probably not going to be impaled on a stake and, and, and covered with... You're, prob, you're right. You're right. But, but listen to me. Don't you have a hundred other things that bother you? And tip you over? And mess with your life? Yes, you do, and so do I. A countless list of things that keep us awake at night. This is a hope for all of that. That the promise that we have in Christ will conquer anything that it is that we're dealing with. No, we may not have our houses taken away and thrown in prison. Thank God. But there are countless things that keep us awake at night, and they shouldn't. Because of the promise that we have in Christ. So Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Rest from your self-salvation project. Rest from all of the stuff that troubles you. Trust in Christ alone. And salvation is yours today. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone here who has never surrendered control to Christ, give the gift of repentance and faith. Raise them from death to life. And Father, right now, we thank you for the promise that we have in Christ that you one day will be back to make every single wrong right. So, Father, right now, we thank you for that promise. In Christ's name, amen. Now we're getting ready for the Lord's table. So here's how we do it at the cross. If you are a professing believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcome to come to the table. And the table will actually be passed to you. The wafers will go through. Take a wafer, wait till we get to the end, and I'll hold up my hand and I'll say, take and eat, and we'll eat together. And then the cup will come second, and that's just juice, it's grape juice. And the cup will come and we'll take and we'll drink together. Let me make something perfectly clear. This table is not to be abstained from. You're, you're, you're to participate. If there's a reason for you to abstain, then you need to come see me when service is over. But you've come to this table because this is spiritual nourishment for you. No, it's not the physical body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's spiritual. As I like to tell the kids, it, he's over, under, around, and through this table. And when you participate of the Lord's Supper, you are nourished spiritually and you're strengthened for what? For all the stuff you have to go through. See, part of that promise is in the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of... We'll confess our sins. Don't let that keep you from taking the Lord's Supper. If it does, come see me. Some people say, well, I just, I, I, you just don't know what I've, I don't need to know. He knows. All those sins have been nailed to the cross. All those sins have been forgiven in Christ. Come to Christ. Participate in the supper. So we'll confess. And then we'll do the Lord's prayer together, okay? Pray with me. Father, we come to you right now and we thank you for the power that's in the gospel. And now we know that you're faithful to forgive, so we come to you with our confession. Hear our confession right now, O oh God, in the quiet of our hearts, hear it. Father God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ spiritually. Gather your whole church into the glory of your kingdom. We pray this in the name of the one who taught us all to pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he'd given thanks and praise, he broke the bread. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which has been given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And eat. And when the supper had ended, he took the cup again, he gave thanks and praise. He gave the cup to his disciples and he said, take this all of you and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, for every time that you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. stand with us. shame to hide redemption shown for all to see perfection bore our penalty in a grace so glorious immortal day 
as law gave way to liberty and freedom for humanity with a grace so glorious and Hey. 